Greetings, fellow mythmakers. The episode of Myth and the Mojave that you're about to hear is part two of an interview with Steve Geringer of the Joseph Campbell Foundation, which originally aired on August 24th, 2013. Find out what we can learn from the Miwok Indian tale of Salmon Boy. everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, a weekly half hour of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your host, Catherine Svela. I live in Joshua Tree, and I'm very happy to bring this program to the high desert and beyond here on Radio Free, Joshua Tree. Now this week we're going to have part two of my conversation with Stephen Geringer from the Joseph Campbell Foundation. As you might recall, Stephen has been talking to us about his, his connection to mythology, which has to do with his experience of living in Modesto and understanding the myths and stories of the native Miwok people who lived there before. Stephen told us the story of Salmon Boy last week, and this week we're going to continue talking about why that story is useful to us today. So let's just jump back into that conversation. And here's Stephen. There's a reason for these stories, as you point out. We are not unique in that we are human beings, and they were human beings generations ago, the people who were here on the land before us. You know, I've got gee, a folder over here with a half dozen versions of this story told by different tribes in different areas. And in some versions, like one near Portland, the people have been respectful to the salmon, but then they lose it. They start mm-hmm. you know, developing this trader instinct or this hoarding instinct. You know, let's build these large traps to collect them all in. And you end up with an overabundance of salmon at first, which leads to the desecration of just, you know, tossing them out, uh-huh. you know, and getting rid of, you know, the bones and stepping on them and disrespecting them. But that that greed is not a new thing that for human beings. It's something that we've wrestled with since the beginning. And a lot of these cultures dealt with it seemingly relatively successfully, here in California, at least in this part of California, there I've seen some uh, studies, may not be the right word, uh, some experts in the field of Native American studies have pointed out that the natives in California, maybe not so much in the Mojave, but mm-hmm. definitely along the coast and up here, they spent maybe 15% of their time working which I wouldn't mind doing myself. <laughs> yeah, and the rest of the time was play, which is important because that's an operative word when it comes to mythology. Joseph Campbell brings that up time and time again. He often refers to, I think it's Johann Huizenga, who, mm-hmm. who wrote Homo Ludens, Man the Player. And um, Joe posits that myth, and he provides a lot of documentation to this effect, myth and ritual arise out of play. And so a lot of play that the Native Americans were doing or that the Yanomamo, you know, do down in the Amazon or, you know, what was happening, you know, up on the plateaus of Tibet a couple thousand years ago and so on. Their play 
was ritual play. So, you know, while they were actually spending only so much time grinding the acorns and doing the fishing and building the lodges and so on, they were spending a lot of time in ritual dances and celebrations. And myth emerges out of that, out of that play. I just want to kind of circle back. Also, I'm thinking about what we were talking about a little bit earlier with uh, the relationship between science and mythology. One of the really beautiful things that happens in this story is the transformation. The boy becomes a salmon, and then he becomes a boy again, and then he becomes a salmon again. And on one level, we can listen to that, you know, for thinking, oh, this is an old story from another set of people. Then you hear that as being some sort of weird supernatural thing that happens. And I certainly don't want to take away from the poetry of that image, but we can also just say that is actually also science because we know we are what we eat. You know, here's a great example of where we can entertain this story on both levels. You know, what it says about um, our psychological and spiritual transformations when we learn something that we need to learn that is about tells us about how things really work, what reality really is, and then also recognizing on the material level the truth of that, which is something that I feel like we can get, we can easily regain Mm -hmm. without all going back to um, some kind of lifestyle that is significantly less technological and everything. It seems like it should be within the realm of our imagination to look at a tomato and go, hey, this is something with value because it will become me and (laughs) I will go into the earth and perhaps be molecules in a tomato. We are all food. Yeah. Yeah, One way or the other. Uh, Everything eats everything else. And when I go, I'll be food for the worms or for the fire. and it, you know, stepping really back, you know, and taking the long view in terms of science, you know, energy and matter, in one sense, nothing really is created or destroyed. It changes form. You know, a little Joseph Campbell snippet, if you will. One mm-hmm. time he was heading with friends to Big Sur. He used to, uh, every year, he would teach Big Sur for a week around his birthday. And as they were driving down to Big Sur one time, Joe was looking out the window at the cows, at the trees, at the grass, you know, at everything. He said, gee, it's all just protoplasm changing form. You know, or as he says, when the lion lies down with the lamb, doesn't mean the lion doesn't eat the lamb. But that, again, it, from the wide perspective, you know, uh-huh. if we step outside ego and the me concern, you know, Nothing is really happening. It's just this marvelous play. And there's that word play again. Now, if I am what I eat, I'm Barry Pie right now. <laughs> right. Which is not such a bad thing. But, yeah, and I, I do think our consciousness is changing in this regard, which is also why I think people are hungry for myth at the moment. Uh-huh. You know, maybe they don't exactly know why, but we are switching perspectives slowly. And I think science enters into that. I, I think, you know, in so many different fields, we uh-huh. are opening up and realizing that all of these fields really intersect in a sense. And 
you, you can't have, you know, a strict division between science and real life mm-hmm. or religion and real life. You know, religion just happens on Sundays. Uh, there seems, and it could be because of my position and the people that I spend more time with, you know, the folks who are looking into what the foundation has to offer and, and wanting to know more about Joseph Campbell. But a lot of people seem to be more aware of that sense, of uh-huh. that there's something more to life than just you go to church at one day of the week and the rest of the time you're out there fighting over sandwiches with everybody else. You know, there is a growing awareness that every moment is sacred. Every breath we take uh-huh. is a sacred breath, you know, up until the moment when we expel our last breath and it goes out and mixes with the universe. You know, and where do we go after that? Right. I might be heading to the salmon village with right. the salmon people. That sounds kind of cool. Right. Yeah, no, I like that. And, you know, I was just thinking since we're, you know, we're talking about Campbell, obviously, which makes sense. There's this little motif of the hero's journey in this story, too, of course. Here you have somebody who is called, projected, pushed, you know, out of the familiar into an unfamiliar realm, transformed, physical, but, you know, more to the point, but transformation and consciousness. Back to the community, renewal of important community values, you know, and I'm kind of trotting through all of this as if it's like really stereotypical, but we all know that this this is really foundational pattern for for human life. And then offers up his gift to the community by reminding people, yes, this is important. And he's the perfect spokesperson in a way because he uh, was known for his lack of respect for exactly this principle at the beginning of the story. Yeah, and the symbolism, too, which is fairly powerful. And I don't think, you know, the first person who came up with the story thought, okay, where's my Jungian in the handbook? Let's, right. let's get this down. But he goes into the water, He's which is often, you know, at least in depth psychology and, frankly, in a lot of stories and a lot of poetry, is a symbol of going within, going into the unconscious, into the unknown. And he's essentially swallowed up by that. And uh-huh. that... That definitely has happened in my life and has happened with a lot of people. You know, we didn't physically go into the water, but there comes a time when you're going in one direction on a path. And for me, I was a very self-centered, very much salmon boy, which may be why this story speaks to me. Nothing Uh was sacred. And then you drown. Uh You know, you're overwhelmed. There's, you're gone. But once you're gone, once you're pulled into it, once you have to surrender to that current taking you away, then the helpers appear mm-hmm. who tell you, oh, it's all right. Go ahead and feed yourself. But this is what you do afterwards, you know, to protect yourself and them. And, you know, at any level you look at this, except perhaps, you know, as a historical reality, you know, this happened you know, on July 13th of, you know, 1242, you know, outside of Seattle or something like that, that aspect isn't so. But when we look at it as a wisdom story, when we look at it as poetry, which in particular to me, that is what's so powerful. You know, we were talking earlier before we went on the air about, uh, gee, 
you know, when people ask us, do you believe these stories? Do you believe this myth? Well, no one asks when you pull out, you know, E.E. E. Cummings, I thank you, God, for most this amazing day. And no one asks, do you believe this poem? Yeah, is this literally so? And that, I think, is an attitude that really helps with myth, approaching it as poetry, which doesn't mean it isn't practical. You know, poetry has taught me a lot more than my chemistry teacher in high school, who was pretty cool, too. <laughs> you know, another thing I really like about this story is the generosity the underlying generosity. The salmon people, I mean, they take him in. And there he is underneath the water, you know. And they're like, yeah, well, you can eat our children. Just do this thing. The generosity and sense of abundance that comes from that. And I keep gravitating back, gravitating towards these parts of the story that allow me to feel hopeful about our possibility to be in a world again where, you know, you can walk across the river without getting your feet wet. But oh, that's... That would be so wonderful. The, the generosity. It's intriguing that up in the Northwest is where the potlatch ceremony developed, which would make sense, you know, with these myths, you know, about giving and you give back. And, of course, this is something throughout, you know, the Americas, in particular through North America. We find the same thing with the buffalo Actually, you find the same thing in Europe, that there's a covenant with the people, and you treat them as people. It's not an it, but the people who provide you your food, and you'll do certain things to help them survive, and they will do things to help you survive. But in the Northwest, the potlatch ceremony, which is incredible, you know, the gift economy of the richest person in the tribe has a party, invites everyone and gives everything he owns away, you know, which kind of upends everything. The, the 1% would not like this <laughs> if we were to suggest this today. But imagine how, what a difference that makes. And that person does not end up destitute because that ceremony keeps repeating itself and other people give. And the more that you give, you know, you empty yourself, essentially. The, the more you receive, the more you respect it. I relate this to the New Testament, which seems a very, very odd leap here. But uh, Jesus, or the Christ, you know, mentions in Scripture that he, he, he was God and he emptied himself for humankind. Kenosis is the Greek word that is used. And the way that makes sense to me is perhaps not in the transactional sense that, mm -hmm. you know, a... a theology has developed today, but a sense of giving. You give yourself. It's kind of the supreme potlatch ceremony. And I think we find that all throughout most myth, too, that when you do that, when you trust that impulse, good things will happen. My personal story, which we don't have time to go into, it bears that out, and I suspect yours does, too, mm -hmm. of all these many instances where you know, on the one hand, when I do something that isn't giving, consequences accrue. But on the other hand, I lived for quite a few years a life on the road, if you will, which involved a lot of that same emptying. And so much richness mm -hmm. came back to me in the process that it gives me confidence in these stories and knowing that they are true because... 
you know, that story plays out in my life and your life and the life of so many others, the symbols are a little bit different and the right. language is a bit different. But the stories speak true. And it is hopeful to me because, again, people do listen to these. And it strikes a chord when someone hears it. And I, I love that moment when you see the aha uh-huh. go off, when someone is hearing a story. And I love it even more when an aha goes off for me. When I'm looking at a story, and at first I'm thinking, well, this doesn't make any sense. You know, back when I was in college, I studied Buddhism in a college course, which mm-hmm. it was a start. It's not the way to experience Buddhism. But I recall a field trip to a Tenrikyo temple, which is more Shinto than Buddhism, and reading some of the liturgy of that, which involved like millions and millions of universes and millions of gods and all of this elaborate, elaborate stories of things that I knew were impossible. And, of course, I brought that up to the Tenrico master. I mean, do you really believe this stuff? I mean, really, literally, does this happen? I didn't get it. I didn't get it at all. Now I see that, and it's beautiful. It's like hearing the notes of a symphony or seeing the colors in a painting you know you don't ask if picasso you know if that blue is literally true is that the way the picture looks uh it just speaks to the soul and to the heart and so these stories can be taken on many levels there's practical advice as you point out you know we are what we eat you know there i think is practical advice in terms of gee our economy we treat salmon as a commodity and we're going to keep doing that for some time uh, until they run out, and then we'll be treating something else as a commodity. But when we do that, when we just see the salmon as a resource, they go away. They stop playing. They withdraw from that covenant that they have with us. So this points a way to help reestablish that covenant with them. But also, you know, as we pointed out, kind of the personal level or the psychological level. This is the hero's journey that each of us goes through over and over and over again in our life. And that to me is the genius of Joseph Campbell. I once wrote um, an essay called Original Campbell. Somebody had you know, brought up in some forum that, well, Joseph Campbell never really came up with anything, you know, any original ideas. He just <laughs> aggregated stuff. And, yeah, there's a lot of that. He was a lumper, not a splitter. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't mind splitters. Specialization was a good thing. You know, he would turn to an anthropologist or a historian when he had to, but he was a great synthesizer there. But one of the key concepts that he came up with is not just the hero's journey, identifying that in the hero with a thousand faces and how that schema unfolds, but finding that it can apply to our lives today, that this is the trajectory of human life and frankly of any venture that we're involved in. And that pattern plays out time and again. It doesn't have to be myth to kill a mockingbird It's the same hero's journey with the same magical helpers. Maybe not supernatural, although Harper Lee does kind of control things as she's writing it. You know, she's the god of that story. But wherever you look, it's there. It's reflected back at us because that is the shape of a human life. And I believe the shape of the human psyche or the human soul 
Yeah, you know, all of this is reminding me of uh, the contact about Grandmother Spider where I said that ultimately we're all choosing the stories to live in that we're most comfortable with. I think a lot of the comments that you've made have really nicely kind of amplified that idea because we are choosing the stories that we are the most comfortable with. And I'm just kind of sitting here and thinking about the anecdote that you told about the scientists rejecting the meteorites because they decided that rocks could not fall from the sky. That's a really great little story. And it may have gone by a little quickly here in our conversation. So I just want to bring people back around to that. There's a great example of making some assumptions and decisions about what could be real and what can't be even in the face of so-called evidence to the contrary. Mm-hmm. And we do that all of the time. You know, We're approaching the world with ideas about how it operates. And, ide- and we approach ourselves with ideas about who we are and how we operate. And that's necessary. I mean, we're, we've, we've all got to have our filters. But we've got to become conscious of what they are and be willing to test them. Otherwise, we're just kind of blindly going with the collective ignorance, you know, if I can put it that way. It's out there, though. Things are changing. And I I notice sometimes it's hard to be hopeful because there is so much strangeness in the world, you know, so much violence, so much conflict, so many people in office doing really strange, bad things. And I'm not just talking about... You know, the public things and the bills they pass. It's it's amazing what happens there. And, and sometimes we'll focus on that when we're watching the 24-hour news shows. You know, and then there's all that reality television, which tends to distract us. But also, I, I've noticed the last few years on television and in film that there seems to me a return to storytelling. Mm-hmm. And that excites me because frankly story is where it's at sometimes story is a better word to use than myth because we bring baggage to myth you know and myth always has to deal with religion in people's minds and wrong religion you know or fiction or lies but story you know which essentially is what powers myth that is how humans operate, how we communicate with each other. We've been telling stories for as long as we can remember and probably far beyond that. You know, if you go back into prehistory, you know, sitting around the fire, they weren't, you know, watching Dancing with the Stars there. They were watching the stars. But then, you know, what emerges from that? What do they tell each other? And, you know, I think it's inextricably tied to being human although we look at the animals around us and they do have stories to tell too i mean Mm -hmm. my cats they'll come up and specifically tell me a story especially when i come in the house of what happened that day or the birds you know we Mm -hmm. have these bird feeders out here because i live in the middle of a city and that's the best way to get some sense of some of the wildlife here. And they will chatter and tell not just us stories, like where have you been with our food, but they'll be constantly talking to and from each other and singing and making noises that I don't quite know what they say, but sometimes I can tell 
you know, what someone is saying to someone else, especially when a magpie enters the mix, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. starts messing with everybody's heads. It gives me hope because this has been going on from the beginning of life on this planet. There's this amazing story that is unfolding and we are aware of it now, mm-hmm. you know, but it happened long before I was born. I think the story has been unfolding long before humanity mm-hmm. came on the scene. You know, the, the universe is singing a song, if right. you will. I am often thinking about how what role mythology plays in the world today and a lot of times conversations with mythologists or people interested in mythology revolves around the idea that we need a new mythology. You know, I'm just curious to run this by you and see what you think about this. I'm increasingly feeling like it's not so much that we need a new mythology, but that we need to become conscious of the fact that we do mythologize. And I'm wondering if the opportunity that we have now, at this time in history, and maybe what distinguishes us from our ancestors, is that consciousness. You know, can we be aware of the fact that we mythologize, that we're entering the world imaginatively, and accept that we don't have absolute truth because of that, and find meaning in our creations? Because it seems that we do need that. I could boil that down and say, well, gee, can we believe something that isn't absolutely true, knowing that it's not absolutely true, can we still find it useful? I mean, what do you what do you think about that? That speaks to me too, very much so. Uh, constantly, I'm being asked, you know, in my role with the foundation, what is the new myth? You know, where is that coming from? As if someone's going to sit down and write it out. And in fact, occasionally we receive missives from people who are writing myths, coming up with myths. But uh, myth is like dream. It emerges. And when you're in a dream, you don't always know you're dreaming. Most of the time I don't. When I wake up in the dream, which happens sometimes, I'm not talking about lucid dreams where I'm trying to control the dream, but just that awareness of, wow, this right now is a dream. And suddenly everything is hyper real, if you will. That, I think, you know, riffing off of what you're bringing Mm -hmm. up, that does sound like where we are. You know, if we're aware that we constantly mythologize, that we are always dreaming, you know, as the Australian Aborigines say, you know, the dreaming, the dream time, Alcharinga, where the dreaming is always going on. You know, the Aztecs used to say there's a dream dreaming us, the Kalahari Bushmen, the same thing. Mythologizing happens, you know, whether we want it to or not. And, it, it, you know, we can look at it on the grand scale, but it even happens, let me throw out one example, another Joseph Campbell story, though Joe wasn't directly involved in this, But uh, Joseph Campbell passed away on October 30th of 1987, which is the eve of Halloween. It's not Halloween itself, but there is something mythologically appealing about, you know, Joseph Campbell, who studied myth, passing away on Samhain or Halloween or All Souls' Eve. So 
when Wikipedia came together some years ago, we noticed that on Wikipedia, his date of passing was put up as October 31st. We'd get someone to go in, change it to October 30th. Within half an hour, it'd be October 31st again. And that is part of the mythologization that happens when someone dies. You start throwing things out there. And it wasn't conscious. I don't think people thought, okay, we're going to force this. It's just it's what people remembered or what they wanted to think. You see October 30th there, somebody blew it. You know, Campbell died on October 31st, and they would change it. And I found that even friends of Joe's, even people involved with the foundation, you know, started believing that he passed on October 30th, 31st and would tell people that. Finally, I took a picture of his grave marker, and we put that up on Wikipedia with a footnote. So that at least stopped that. But still, <laughs> all over the Internet... You know, the, because people for years use Wikipedia as a source, you can go to all sorts of sites and find that Joseph Campbell died on October 31st. And that's just one little minor thing in one person's life, you know, where we mythologize a public mm-hmm. figure. And we mm-hmm. do that all the time. But that's part of our process. And as I mentioned, those are with little things. But we do that with big picture stuff, too, with rocks falling out of the sky or not falling out of the sky. We cannot escape it so the new myth what's the new myth we're in the middle of it and we won't have any idea you know what that is until there's a little bit of distance and a little bit of time but it's shaping our culture it's shaping the world you know we might as well just swim with the current see where it takes us and if we end up with the salmon people cool ending up with the salmon people well i think there would be a lot Worst places to be. And certainly if that's where Steve Geringer is ending up, that's where I'd like to go. Many, many, many thanks to Stephen for his insights and his storytelling. And I encourage you to check out the Joseph Campbell Foundation website at jcf.org if you are not familiar with the work of Joseph Campbell. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope to see you next week. In the meantime, happy myth-making and keep the mystery in your life.